Hello, and welcome back to Franklin Covey's newest weekly podcast, C-Suite Conversations with Scott Miller. That's me. I serve as your host and interviewer next week. If my voice or my mug looks or sounds familiar to you, you may know me as the host of what is now the world's largest weekly leadership podcast called On Leadership with Scott Miller, where each week I have the privilege of sitting over on that set about eight feet that way, interviewing uh, business titans, best-selling authors, celebrities, athletes, people that have had some particular point on leadership that we highlight and share our spotlight. And because of the success of that podcast and the insight, which was it wasn't always the household name celebrity that got the most downloads. It was often people like today's guests that have had remarkable entrepreneurial careers. They've worked in the C-suite, but their journeys are both admirable and even relatable on our own career journeys. And today our guest is Chip Conley. He is a a serial entrepreneur. He is an expert in hospitality, in understanding how to find purpose in your life. He's built a whole series of businesses around purpose, including as the founder and CEO of a unique organization called Modern Elder Academy. And Chip Conley joins us today. Chip, welcome to C-Suite Conversations. Oh, Scott, it's great to be with you. Thank you. So, Chip, we had a great off-air conversation, built some rapport, delighted today to feature our podcast spotlight on you. I want to spend most of our time talking about what is an earned passion of yours, which is really finding meaning in life, particularly midlife and even kind of the crescendo of life, and how we can all discover our purpose and and connect it to that meaning. But what I'd like to also do is maybe back up a couple of decades because you have had a remarkable career academically and professionally as the founder visionary of a renowned uh, hospitality company, Joie de Vie. You have built and created and sold valuable enterprises. You were a mentor to the founder of Airbnb. And although much of your career has been in the hospitality business, now you are focused on, you know, kind of, kind of focused on helping successful people really ground and find meaning in life. We'll get to that, I promise you. Would you reorient our listeners and viewers today to what, quite frankly, is an undeniable career success through a variety of ventures? Take a few minutes and walk us through those. Sure. Um, You know, I went to Stanford undergrad and then went to Stanford Business School. So I graduated at a very young age, at age 23, and knew that I was pretty fascinated by commercial real estate. Um, I, I grew up in Southern California and was born five miles from Disneyland. So I like the idea of Walt Disney's approach to commercial real estate. So creative commercial real estate. I, After two years in a company out of business school, I decided to start a boutique hotel company. It was one of the first in the U.S. Uh, called Joie de Vivre, meaning Joy of Life. And in fact, Scott, you've stayed at some of our hotels. Um, and then I, I ran it for 24 years as the CEO and um, created 52 boutique hotels around California. We became the second largest boutique hotel here in the U.S. But in my late 40s, I had what I now call a midlife chrysalis. <laughs> it's normally called a midlife crisis, but it, a chrysalis is actually a better positioning of it because, yes, it was dark, solitary, and gooey, but it's actually where the transformation happened. And I sold Joie de Vivre. It's now a Hyatt brand. And I knew I was ready for something next. And that's when the uh, the Airbnb founders came along. They were, this is over 10 years ago. It was a tiny little tech startup, but that, that had a lot of promise. And the founders were really smart, but they were very young and had never run a business and didn't understand hospitality or travel. 
And so they asked me to join them. Um, within a month or so, they started calling me the modern elder of Airbnb because I was twice the age of the average person there. And um, they said also, Chip, you're a modern elder because you're as curious as you are wise. And that was important because at age 52, I joined a tech company for the first time. Yes, I was the mentor to the founder, uh, and I was also reporting to him as the head of global hospitality and strategy. Um, but I had to learn a lot, and I really had to right-size my ego. And It was a fascinating journey in my 50s, and I loved it. Led to a book called my fifth book, which was called Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder. And while I was writing that book down here in Mexico, uh, at a you know in a southern part of Baja, an hour north of Cabo San Lucas, I came up with the idea of the Modern Elder Academy, the world's first midlife wisdom school. And so we've been in business for over five years now. We have about oh, 32, 3,500 alumni globally from 42 countries, and we have 26 regional chapters around the world. So we'll talk about that in just a few moments. Let's talk about what's something many of our listeners and viewers can relate to is that the research shows that between 45 and 50 years old, we tend to have what's known as sort of the lowest point of happiness in life. And yeah. you would say, actually, it's not a midlife crisis, but rather a midlife calling. Now, that's not some pithy, mm -hmm. you know, podcast adage yeah. or <laughs> tagline on a book, but it is like a, hmm, hadn't thought about that. Not midlife crisis, midlife calling. What happens in that 45 to 50 year point where I'm in. I'm 44 years old, I'll be 45 in about six weeks or so. Uh, other than three young boys kicking my ass every day, why do I <laughs> relate to this being kind of like good grief? I should be on top of the world. I'm not. Well, and first of all, Scott, your mileage may vary. So the, the low point in the U-curve of happiness uh, research by social science researchers globally is 47.2. Oh, wait, uh, so, so it gets worse for me. I, I, I guess worse. Your mileage may vary. Your mileage may vary. So it doesn't, there's, that's the average. Um, basically what happens is starting around our early to mid-20s, our level of life satisfaction starts to decline. There's a lot of reasons for that. Um, but it bottoms out around 45 to 50, partly because I like the equation. I wrote a book called Emotional Equations. Um, uh, it was a New York Times bestseller. So there's an equation in that book called Disappointment Equals Expectations Minus Reality. And it's around 45 to 50 that we have, we come face to face with some of the expectations we had in our life. I'm not going to be president. I'm not going to, my kids aren't going to an Ivy League school. Um, I didn't marry my soulmate. Uh, you know, I don't have as much money in the bank as I, as Jeff Bezos. Uh, so there's a, there's, there's a reckoning. And Brene Brown, a friend of mine uh, and a friend of ours at MEA, uh, has called this the midlife unraveling. And it doesn't sound very good to be unraveling in midlife, but it's actually a good thing because if you look at the word ravel, it means so tightly wound, you cannot unbound it. Um, so there's an element, I don't know if that's how your shoulders feel, in your neck and shoulders feel, Scott, but that's how a lot of people feel in midlife is raveled. So the unraveling is you start to unravel some of your expectations. You start to rejigger, reimagine what's important to yourself. And so what happens in the U-curve of happiness research is that it, people show that in your 50s, you're happier than the 40s, 60s happier than 50s, 70s happier than 60s, and women in their 80s happier than 70s. So it is a U-curve, and uh, the low point is 45 to 50. 
but there's a lot of reasons for it. It's natural. It's normal. Yes, we call it, some people call it a midlife crisis, but it's really not. And I, the midlife calling means there you start to actually listen to something deeper inside of you of how you want to live your life. Uh, and it may not be a red Ferrari or an, an affair. It actually may be a different path for your career or a, a reclarification of your priorities and your expectations. Um, that's why I call it the chrysalis as well. The midlife chrysalis means, you know, that that, that caterpillar in the, in the chrysalis, you know, it's dark and gooey, but on the other side of it, this winged butterfly comes out. And that's really the happiness that often happens after age 50. Okay, you've got my attention and the millions of people watching this, listening right now that are in that. Uh, I'm guessing the reason you mentioned women in their 80s was because the average lifespan of a male is like 77 or something, or they don't make it to their 80s. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Women, women, women on average live six years longer. Yes. I mean, what, what, you know, it's a bit of a travesty in the U.S. right now how, how far longevity has dropped. Uh, unlike the rest of the world, everybody's longevity dropped during COVID, but it, the U.S. has continued to go down such that today longevity in the U.S. is only at the same level as it was in 1996, whereas it's way up. We're, we're seven years, eight years behind most of the developed world in terms of our longevity right now. Or life expectancy. So, long story short, is yes, women live longer, um, and men actually have men actually have some troubles in the post fifties era. Women do too. The, the issues that men often have relate to feeling irrelevant. Uh, for women, it, it's feeling invisible. Um, those are the two most used words by people who are struggling with midlife. Uh, the irrelevance for men is often around their purpose. And, you know, they're, they're a pip, they're a previously important person. <laughs> and for women, it's often, sometimes it's the invisibility in the workplace, but sometimes it's just the invisibility of um, being an older woman, being a silver fox like a Richard Gere or a George Clooney earns you points. Being a Helen Mirren, she has to really be awfully amazing to get the attention. And the good news is I think the advertising world has seen the value of older women as spokespeople. Um, but for a lot of women, it, it feels like they're invisible and that that is, so for some of them, not fun. Um, so. Well, given that I'm clearly a pip, it's been nice talking with you. Thank you for your time today, Chip. We wish you, <laughs> okay, good grief, brother. Okay, so again, you're kind of speaking my language because I'm a pip and increasingly previous. You are not a pip. You have an amazing pod, you have a, mm. now two, a couple podcasts. You are you have a huge collection of followers. Um, a pit, you know, so Aaron Taylor was a pip. So the Modern Elder Academy, we have all kinds of amazing faculty members. Everybody from Esther Perel to Dan Butner was here, uh, you know, doing Blue Zones longevity talks here last week. Um, to uh, you, you name it. Um, so the the reality is that what when you actually look at what people are looking for for the for the life. They're not necessarily looking to be the VIP that they were um, at, in their younger life. And some people weren't a VIP, but Aaron Taylor was. So Aaron Taylor played uh, football for the Green Bay Packers. He has the Super Bowl ring. At age 28, he got a you know a, a career-ending injury. And so he was a pip because he was no longer an NFL player, and his life spiraled downward. And he had to actually turn it around. And he and it, there, his faith and a variety of different things led him to that. Uh, and now he's, you know, he's a commentator um, on, you know, CBS Sports. But he focuses very much on mental health for people um, who are pips. 
not just athletes, but software engineers in their 30s or 40s or advertising executives in their 40s or 50s. There's a lot of people who actually become obsolescent earlier in their careers because of technology today. So Aaron Taylor is one of our guest faculty members, and he is he he was a pip. You are not a pip. You have you still have quite a, a runway ahead of you in your current path. But as Arthur Brooks showed in his book From Strength to Strength, and he's also a guest faculty member of MEA, um, actually sometimes you have to get off of the the path you've been on in terms of your career, and you have to because there's fluid intelligence when you're young. That's your strength and it crystallized intelligence when you're older and crystallized intelligence means you're a better holistic thinker. Um, you think more systemically and there's career paths for people in their 40s, 50s, 60s and 70s that are better suited for someone with crystallized intelligence. Okay, I'm feeling a little bit better about myself, um, marginally. Uh, Chip, earlier you mentioned a previous book you wrote and you talked about this formula. I want you to repeat that formula, but slower this time because I have a question about it. Yeah. So disappointment equals expectations minus reality. Unpack this for, unpack that for the people that are listening right now that are sort of leaning in, thinking, oh my gosh, he's talking my language. I'm thinking about my wife, who is a full-time stay-at-home mom house manager who's 42 yes. years old also getting her hide tanned every day by an eight-year-old Scott Miller, a 10-year-old Scott Miller, and a 12-year-old Scott Miller, and then a 54-year-old <laughs> Scott Miller. So Stephanie Miller, who is, should be living her best years, is getting her butt kicked. Scott Miller, who's 54 years old, is getting his butt kicked, and a previous Pip, who's lost his Pep. Um, unpack that <laughs> formula for us and give us, some, give us some hope around how do we find purpose? Is purpose a verb? Is it a noun? Take that wherever you okay. want to go. You're giving me a lot of questions here. I'm going to try to capture those two. So disappointment equals expectations minus reality. Well, the the fact is that um, the when you have an expectation of something, if it exceeds it, then you have delight. If it's less than it, you have disappointment. Um, and so what? there's two ways to not be disappointed. One is to reduce your expectations. Secondly is to improve reality. And so I would just say that, you know, a lot of people in midlife um, start to readjust their expectations on things. And there's some relief in that, to be honest with you. It's, you know, uh, it, it may actually mean that you get off the treadmill a little bit more, or it may mean you're actually a little bit more easygoing on yourself, a little bit more compassionate toward yourself and others. Um, okay, the second piece you talked about was purpose. So, like, pr so purpose, purpose is a possession in the American world. It's like... The people say it all the time. We have, you know, over 3,000 people who've come to Baja to come to our programs, week-long programs. And they often say, I've come here because all my friends have a purpose and I don't have one. As if, like, <laughs> your friends have a BMW in the drive in the driveway and you don't have one. It's like keeping up with the Joneses as applied to purpose. Um, so purpose is not a possession. It, it is a gift. Um, and it is the opportunity to, to live a calling. But we get so much performance anxiety about what purpose is that my recommendation for people is to start with not the, the noun of purpose, but start with the verb of purposeful or being, per, or being having purposefulness built into your life. What in your life are you ex passionate about or upset about or curious about? Those are, those are little indicators that 
you have some potential purposefulness there because if you're actually are passionate, you know, positively, negatively, or curiosity with curiosity, you're in a position to start to explore that topic. And in the process of exploring your purposefulness about that topic, you might find the breadcrumbs to a purpose. And that, whether that purpose is as Richard Leiter, one of our MEA faculty members who wrote a book called The Power of Purpose uh, says, a big P purpose, uh, a, a purpose that is the kind of thing that you put on your resume, or it's a small P purpose. You know, the fact that you actually have an amazing garden in your backyard that you just love being a green thumb, um, or you you ran a half marathon. Um, these are more small P, whereas the big P are like, okay, these are the things that people will remember, you know, at your eulogy. Bottom line is, I think I want to take some pressure off of people, especially in the United States, that uh, they don't have to have a big P purpose uh, to compare with the Joneses down the street. Chip, honestly, I'm riveted thinking about you because, again, you're kind of speaking my language. I want you to go a little deeper into kind of the process of discovering your purpose because mm. it, it, it is sort of a keeping up with the Joneses. I mean, I've had a, quite frankly, I was a, P, a PIP and I've had a very successful career. And if you ask me my purpose, I'd say, I don't know. I mean, I think my purpose now is to raise these three young boys and allow them not to destroy my marriage, which is mm -hmm. incongruent, right? Because it's hard to raise three mm -hmm. boys and keep your marriage together. I, that would not have been my calling in life. I never wanted to be a parent, really I am. And I'm doing my best to bring my force to it. But at 54, I'm not sure I know my purpose. I don't know mm -hmm. that other people I think most people don't know their purpose. Yeah, I, I would agree. Although, let's go back to P, big P, small P purpose. I mean, do you, <clears throat> would you consider yourself being a great parent to be a big P purpose or a small P purpose? Uh, oh, definitely a big P purpose, but less okay. by choice and more by reality acceptance. Okay, that's great. You can have multiple big P purposes. That's the first thing to know, just like you can have multiple small P purposes. But the fact it's a big P purpose means it's something you you should value. Yeah. Um, men don't value it nearly as much as women, being a parent. You know, the data on this is pretty conclusive. And and yet so much so often the kids need their dad um and the the role the dad plays in their life uh as much as the mom. So the fact that you're saying it's a big P purpose is great, but you may not be valuing it. Beyond that, let's go to the career side of things. Uh, you know, there's uh, there's a great quote I love, which is the meaning of your life is to find your gift. The work of life is to develop it. And the purpose of life is to give it away. Mm -hmm. So if you were at MEA with us at the Modern Elder Academy, um, I would do a one-on-one -on -one with you. And we would, I would ask you the following question. You know, what mastery or gift can you offer the world? And we would do a repeating question five times. Uh, sometimes I do this with ex leaders and entrepreneurs, and the question is, what business are you in? And we try to distill down to what's the essence or the differentiator of your business. But in this case, for your purpose, I might try to really distill down to what it is that is your essential gift that you have to offer. When I did this exercise, I came to realize that I was a social alchemist a mixologist of people. And I've been doing that my whole career, but nobody had ever said, Chip, you are a social alchemist. It doesn't appear on my LinkedIn profile. But once I understood that differentiating essence of who I am and what I can offer, 
it became the pair of glasses, the filter I could use in looking at any opportunities that were coming my way or at how I can do what I call same seed, different soil, which is what I did when I went from Joie de Vivre to Airbnb. I had a seed, my talent, my gift. I now put it in different soil, a tech company. And, and you can do the same. Chip, how did Joie de Vivre become the second largest boutique um, hotelier in the nation? What, 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 what beyond, beyond your role, but including your role, what were some of the leadership uh, intentions, practices, systems, culture that helped that firm? How many hotels yeah. were there? 52. This is, this is like Ian Schrager level influence. Honestly, <laughs> how did that happen? Yeah, we were actually, we were bigger than Ian Schrager, but, but I didn't have Ian. the Ian. Take that, Ian. I didn't have the Ian Schrager name. But long story short, is, uh, I would say that my my pen pal mentor from afar was Herb Kelleher, sure. founding CEO of Southwest Airlines. Um, when I was about, I started the company when I was 26, when I was in my early to mid 30s, I could see, wow, we're going to get big. And I think at that point we had five or six hotels. And I was like, I can't be at all those hotels every day. And so I said, culture is the most important thing. I was a big fan of Peter Drucker. And Peter Drucker said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And I was like, okay, who do I most admire as a leader and as a company when it comes to their culture? And Southwest Airlines was first on my list. So I called Dallas and talked to uh, his assistant, Colleen Barrett, who ultimately, amazingly, was his executive assistant who became president of the company, ultimately. And she said, you know what? He can't be your mentor, Chip. But if you write him a letter and you have three or four great questions around culture, he loves that topic, I bet he'll respond. I did that, and for the next 10 years, he was my pen pal. Every, once a year, I would write him letters. So I would say that the number one thing I can you know, offer here is the idea that investing in culture is one of the most important long-term investments you can make in creating a sustainable, profitable business. Uh, in, the, in the short term, it may actually reduce your profits a little bit. In the long term, it creates something that's enduring. And I did try to do the same with the founders of Airbnb. Um, so yeah, I'd say it's about investing in culture, investing in leadership teams, investing in democratizing the, the kinds of things that usually are sort of stuck in the C-suite, only in the C-suite. How do you democratize culture? How do you democratize philanthropy? How do you democratize decision-making and autonomy? Uh, let's talk about your uh, journal. You call it your wisdom book. You started this, I think, yes. in your late 20s. Our, what the heck is a wisdom book? And it sounds very Baja. And I'd like to know, kind of, <laughs> are there things in there that you've written, you look back on and you laugh? Are there things that you've written that have shaped the crescendo of your life in Modern Elder Academy? Talk a bit about the wisdom book. Why should I have one? Yeah, so, so, the, so let's talk about a couple things here uh, before I even bring up the book. What's knowledge versus what's wisdom? Knowledge is something you accumulate. You know, the knowledge may be, you know, you, you know the, the capital of Indiana is Indianapolis. Wisdom is hard won. It's, it's, it's not necessarily something you're gonna find in an encyclopedia. Um, it's based upon life experience. So, and I, and I believe uh, that the definition of wisdom uh, is, this is Chip's definition, is metabolized experience, in essence, life lessons which leads to distilled compassion uh, because uh, wisdom is a social good. Uh, if you're just metabolizing your experience for your own benefit, that's being shrewd and there's nothing wrong with being shrewd. I want a shrewd person by me at, a, at the negotiating table. But wisdom is different than being shrewd. It's actually offering your, wis offering your wisdom 
to the social good, to something that's beyond yourself. So I, at age 28, two years into being a, a young CEO of a hospitality company, realized how, excuse me, effing clueless I was as a CEO. And we had the Loma Prieta earthquake in San Francisco and we were in trouble. And so somebody said, you know, Chip, you should just write in a journal. And I had, at that point, I had a lot of journals that I'd never written in. Um, but instead, I, I, I pulled out a book. I actually called it my wisdom book. And I wrote inside of it the six things I had learned that week. Uh, and they were hard lessons. Mm. They were the kinds of things that where I was just stupid. I felt like I'd made mistakes. But I wrote them down partly because I wanted to get them out of my head mm. um, because they were just like making me anxious. And so I wrote three things down. What were the, what, what were the, there were six different bullet points, but with each bullet point was what did I learn? What, what was the situation? How did it make me feel? And what's my lesson moving forward? And I've now been doing that for 34 years. I spend 20 to 30 minutes every weekend. I don't do it in, in, in old journals now. I do it in a Google Doc format. Uh, but it allows me to metabolize my experience in a way that actually accelerates my wisdom. Because quite frankly, you could be a 30-year-old totally wise person as uh, and a 70-year-old unwise person mm -hmm. based upon how you have made sense of your life experiences. You're inspiring me, my friend. Tell me about the Modern Elder Academy. How does someone get registered and get fixed while they're there? <laughs> well, um, we have a campus here in Baja on the beach, five acres, and um, we have week-long week programs year-round. Um, but we also have online programs. Uh, so for those who don't want to travel down to Mexico, uh, we have six and eight-week programs. Uh, the six-week program is called Living and Working on Purpose. The uh, sorry, the eight-week program is that. The six-week program is Navigating Midlife Transitions. And then we have a campus that's opening uh, in early 2024, uh, not too far from where you live, uh, in uh, New Mexico, in Santa Fe, New Mexico, a 2,600-acre regenerative horse ranch. Um, we've taken retired horses, and they're bringing the, the soil back to life. And we ha we'll have two uh, retreat center houses there, um, and then another uh, campus in Santa Fe in 2025. So you can go, you know, you learn it all at modernelderacademy.com. And I have a daily blog if people just want to sort of tap into some of what we talked about today, which is called Wisdom Well. Uh, Wisdom Well. Uh, if you just do my name and Wisdom Well on Google, you'll find it. Chip, I'm way over time, but literally you've riveted me because you're speaking exactly to kind of where I am in life. I want to revisit for a moment the formula. You talked about, you know, readjusting your expectations or maybe sort of embracing reality more firmly. For people who are in that, you know, 45 to 55 range and they realize they're not going to be the president, they're not going to have a Gulf Stream, they're whatever, whatever, whatever. They're a pip who's lost their pep, who needs to find their pep to become a pip. What do, <laughs> what do you want to send us off with? Um, make my weekend worth living, my friend. How do I, what do I do next? I think the most important question for us to ask ourselves in midlife, in the core of midlife, which you're talking about, is what will I regret if I don't do it or learn it now? Think as a precursor to that, think about 10 years ago. Like, what is it that you know now that you wish you'd known about or learn, had learned 10 years ago? And then ask yourself, what is it that you could learn now or do now that you won't, will mean you won't regret it 10 years from now? And the reason I say is that's the most important thing for people to consider is that around age 50, 
learning to become a beginner again, based upon our curiosity and our openness to new experiences, is the most important investment we can make. Because it allows us to move from a fixed to a growth mindset. It allows us to get better and to improve at things. It allows us to, to consider new options for ourselves. And um, last and fi uh, finally, when you have curiosity and openness to ex new experiences, you're, those are the two of the most correlated uh, variables to living a long, healthy, happy life. Chip, can I take two more minutes? Yeah. Um, about nine months ago, my father passed in his early 80s, 83 years old. Uh, passed in Orlando, Florida, where I'm from. I was there at his bedside for a couple of hours, and he had a combination of some um, kind of surprising levels of cancer and got pneumonia and passed pretty quickly. Knew he was mm -hmm. at the end of his life. In fact, he said that morning, I'm done. Call Scott. Send him out. I flew out. My, my mother, who is obviously still alive in her 80s, and my brother and I were there, and my father passed. And I remember I was very sad, less sad because I'd lost my father. My father and I weren't especially close. We weren't estranged. It was kind of a fairly typical, you know, father-son relationship, arm length. Can't recall my father touching me, kissing me, or telling me he loved me ever in my life. But my dad was a good provider. He was a faithful husband. He was a hard worker. And I remember when my father passed, I remember feeling very sad because I felt like, like, what was your purpose? Like, you know, you'd led a fairly unremarkable life. Now, he died financially comfortable. Perhaps I'm mm -hmm. underselling his influence. Hey, he raised yes. and launched two sons, and he, you know, kept my mother in good financial health for the rest of her life. But I remember thinking, my dad's life had become very focused around stuff. He was a very... Um, he was a very uh, hardworking man. He'd become a little bit of a hoarder in life, had like 10 storage mm. units full of stuff, 10 storage <laughs> units yeah. full of stuff. And it's both comical and, and, and depressing at the same time. And I remember as my father passed, me being very sad thinking, I don't want to be in his position when I'm 83, yeah. having my life be okay. focused on stuff and not knowing my purpose. I remember thinking beyond, beyond, and I'm not disparaging my father. My dad raised two mm -hmm. sons and launched my brother and I into spectacularly healthy, hopefully, lives. What do I do to make sure that I don't yeah. find myself at a similar fate? Couple, couple thoughts there. Uh, and by the way, at age 54, you're the average age of our MEA alums. So uh, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe we're supposed to see you in Baja or Santa Fe. Um, first thing is uh, uh, Carl Jung, the famous psychologist, said the first half of a life, our life is about accumulating and the second half of our life is about editing. Uh, Richard Rohr, the famous Christian mystic, um, who has, is a student of MEA, amazingly, at age 78, he came to Baja after writing 50 books and he came not as a teacher, but as a student. Um, he has said the same thing. So learning how to edit, we call it the great midlife edit. Uh, your, fa your father was a hoarder. People sometimes are hoarding memories, so they're hoarding, uh, you know, resentments or they're Supporting old ideas and how do we actually realize there's some of these just need to go away. Secondly, is a developmental psychologist, uh, uh, Eric Erickson, uh, famously said, the most important question we need to ask after age 50 is, um, the, actually is based upon the, the, quest, the uh, five words, I am what survives me. And the question is, what will survive you? And unfortunately, in your father's biography now, it's like, okay, 
he was a hoarder. He had, ten, you know, so that's what survived him, all that stuff. Ideally, what survives us, as David Brooks so aptly wrote in The Road to Character and in that op-ed from 2016 about the moral bucket list, is what survives us is what comes up at our eulogy. It's the character qualities that people were touched by. It is the way you made people feel. And that's what I focus on today. I am a big fan of It's a Wonderful Life and Jimmy Stewart out there with Clarence the Angel um, on the, uh, the bridge considering jumping and Clarence showing him what his life would be like if he wasn't there. That was an I am what survives me moment. And I think that we all need to have one of those uh, such that we don't even consider jumping off the bridge. Because when you realize that you can have an impact, small impact, small P impact, um, you know that your life was meaningful. Chip, I'll be honest, I sometimes dread coming into the studio because interviewing a lot takes a lot of preparation and it takes insight and some days you're not, you're not up to it, right? But mm -hmm. uh, I'm really blessed and fortunate that you joined us today. I've thoroughly enjoyed this. I'm, uh, I know which of the unopened journals on my office when I drive home, I'm gonna, I'm gonna turn in my wisdom journal. I'm going to replay oh, this and talk about the three questions I should ask myself. I'm going to think about the editing process. And as I've been listening to you, I've been thinking about, like, so what's the lesson I'm going to take away from my dad's life, right? Like, what, what really, his life was more about the stuff in the storage units, clearly. And, but I don't want to be there in life. I want to be focusing not less on now accumulation of more in editing. You're a class act. Chip Conley, you're the founder and CEO of Modern Elder Academy. I appreciate you joining us today. Thank you, Scott. It's been an honor. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation from the C-Suite. <laughs>